to start today with um, a piece of news that uh, hit the media. Uh, the NVIDIA co-founder, of course, you know, everybody's paying attention these days to, to what NVIDIA talks about. So Jensen Huang recently said that nobody in their right mind would start a company and that he would opt out if he could go back in time. Nektharia, welcome. <laughs> and as you are a four times founder, are you in your right mind? <laughs> I have to, to, to ask you, and you have a po podcast focused on mental health. Um, that's that's probably the best opener in a conversation ever. Am I in my right mind? Of course I'm not, but none of us is. <laughs> the question is, how do you manage that? Um, it was an interesting statement. It was an interesting statement from somebody who's was founded and grown a company to that level. And very often people who start a company don't see it through. They might, the company might grow, but they might no longer be involved. So it's what, quite a rarity for a founder to be mm. leading the company for a while. But ultimately the question that you're asking is, why do people do that when they know it's difficult? Um, and there is an element here where you need to have an element of crazy uh, to, to start a company, right? Um, so yeah, is this is this a good answer? It is a good answer, but you know, you and I, and I know you you your your passion. You always find ways to bring up this topic um, of the vulnerability of entrepreneurs, which on the face of it really sounds like an oxymoron, right? Mm. Because you know we 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 have these stereotypes of entrepreneurs as these you know very courageous. Uh, risk takers, whatever, they're all, you know, these these above normal attributes. So is is was Jensen Huang really alluding to that vulnerability of entrepreneurs? And and I know you talk a lot about the fact that they're more prone to mental health issues. Why? Um so I talk about this because I started something called the Future Farm, which is an awareness raising platform to, to advocate for better mental health and entrepreneurship. And we did this because we've seen so many people, especially first time founders, struggle with their mental health. And to your point, why? It's because people are attracted by the narrative, the, the success stories, the, the glitziness of it. There is something about the Silicon Valley uh, kind of paradigm, call it what you like, which just looks amazing. And people are attracted by work hard, party hard, and the potential huge returns. And there's something attached to the lifestyle of it, especially in the last 10 years. But reality is that it is hard. And everybody who goes into this has been told at some point that the chances of you succeeding are next to zero, right? It's mm -hmm. minimal. But there's this cognitive dissonance that you know it's hard, but you think for some reason that you will make it um, and this goes back to ultimately the intrinsic motivation of founders. Why do people do this is because most entrepreneurs who, especially the ones who stick it through, really have something to prove. They have some itch, some chip on their shoulder, call it what you like, and that keeps them going. Um, and we had a very interesting conversation with, with um, an academic, Professor Ute Stefan from King's College recently, who's done some research and they're saying that you can be super stressed and super fulfilled at the same time. But because the fulfillment is so strong, you kind of tend to ignore the stress and the stress is ultimately, in her words, stress is a killer. 
So there is something around this dissonance, this this paradox of holding both things at the same time, which is one of the drivers of of business builders, I suppose. Amazing, amazing. I mean, what you said, the holding both, and um, I guess not being aware of of how the uh, the the stressor is um, impacting you or mm. affecting you. Uh, and so on. I mean, you're a fintech veteran. Um, you know, if we, we if we had to uh, put a you know a vertical uh, on on the entrepreneurship that you've been involved in, and um, I mean, fintech is all about the digital transformation or the digitization of financial services and. Um, I, I think of it as digital and customer centricity that doesn't exist, uh, you know, in traditional financial services as a duo that's inseparable, thanks uh, to fintech. Uh, now, is it true that the CEOs of these fintechs and, and all these digital innovators are um, ignoring their mental health and their team's mental health in the name of customer centricity. And I, I and I when I say this, I bring to mind the extreme uh entrepreneur, that's not even a fintech entrepreneur, but you know, Elon Musk sleeping in the Twitter headquarters and and threatening his employees to to stay there 24 hours and and so on. Um, Effie, this can go down so many different avenues. Let's focus on, on, on the actual question. Look, you can call it customer centricity, but ultimately there is a bigger bigger thing behind this, which is the people who are building businesses usually are driven by solving a problem. And it's a solving a problem that other people can't solve in the same way. So in financial services, it is digitization. And if you build a startup, a tech startup, uh, especially like a scalable venture backable startup from scratch, you do this by focusing on your customers' needs extremely. So there is an element of extreme customer centricity here. But the reason people neglect their mental health and their, their team's um, mental health is, is really not so much that. It's the fact that people follow the business needs and neglect the fact that in order for the business to survive, they need to look after themselves. And maybe we can draw some parallels to the corporate world where people very often become managers because they do a thing well, rather than them being particularly equipped to manage people. In the same way, you have people starting businesses, especially again, first-time founders, because they had a great idea, because they understand the numbers, or because they're great technologists, but they're not necessarily equipped to lead. And this makes it really interesting because if you don't have an understanding about your own leadership capabilities, if you don't have the self-awareness about where you need to take it slow because you're suffering, and if you don't look after yourself, then how can you develop a mindset that allows you to care about the mental health of your employees? COVID has changed it a little bit because this is where people really realize that they're struggling. And that changed the way people look at their teams as well. But reality is that the motivation of a of an entrepreneur is usually driven by something very different. Um, and uh, therefore, a lot of startups are building culture in inverted commas that is really not looking after people. And then you can bring back Elon Musk to see what the culture in, in Twitter slash X is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and and also you know when I, when I think and look at certain grown up fintechs, I see a business culture more in terms of how you know they treat the teams and the people that is not that different or you know superior if you want if, if there's such thing uh, than than the incumbents or or others. Well, without naming names, if you look at some of the big success stories of fintech companies in the UK. There are, I think, an interesting way to look at what is culture in these organizations. And to me, this is also linked. How do people care about the mental health and the overall well-being of the employees is to look at turnover numbers. There are some very successful companies where you don't speak to the same person twice because people don't stay long. And then you've got other very successful companies where people who've been, the company's been around for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. People have been around for a long time. And this is a reflection of the founders ultimately building companies that care about the overall well-being of their employees. Yeah, yeah. Nectaria, what is the role of VCs and investors and even... <laughs> to put you on the spot, accelerators and incubators in this mental health, um, you know, conundrum, if you want. Um, the reason I started the Future Farm is because I realized at some point that I was part of the problem. Because when we started the accelerator, we started Startup Bootcamp in 2014, we were really living the hype. We drank the Kool-Aid. The slogan in the accelerators that we ran was, every day is 1% of the program. So we had actually a flip chart starting with 100 and counting down to create that artificial pressure that the accelerator was meant to be, not realizing the side effects of it, but observing it slowly, realizing actually something's off about this extra pressure. Um, when we started the Future Farm, we actually looked around, started talking to friends, VCs, people in the ecosystem to get a sense of how do they look at this? And it was shocking. So we're talking about four years ago, um, uh, pre-pandemic, shocking to talk to VCs who literally verbatim said, I don't care. I don't care if a startup fails because the founder fails, their words, uh, then the business wasn't meant to succeed. But then you also found some VCs who recognize that if actually see that they have a role in supporting or giving people permission to do things um, that this might actually help the business go through a difficult period and it will succeed. So, um, there, but they're very, very small, small numbers. And I think generally still the mindset is um, that the VCs don't really have to do much about this, but reality is that most companies that we talk to, the moment things got really difficult is the first time they got venture investment. Uh, the first time they had a VC breathing down the necks. Um, so they do play a role. Um, and we, we we see increasingly organizations recognize that role, but as with many things, we're already risking that it flips to tick box exercises and lip service and signing pledges without necessarily generally figuring out what is the best way to, to to address this, based on the organizational ethos and the remit, etc. Was this an answer to your question? It does. It does answer to the question. So so. What kind of solutions are out there to support this problem? And, and of course, we could, you know, talk about this for, for, for hours, but give us an idea. It's so we actually shy away from talking about solutions. Okay. And, and what I like to leave people with is that in order to find the right solution, you need to start with introspection. In the podcast that we run, we invite founders to give us their story 
quite raw, quite vulnerably to tell us what were the mental health symptoms, signs that they've seen, which were the signals that they ignored, how did they hit rock bottom, and how did they get better? Just to give people a sense of there are some parallels, maybe they recognize themselves in this, but also everybody's journey is different also to come out of this. If somebody's really in the middle of a really mental, big mental health uh, challenge at the moment, it's really difficult to shake somebody out of it um, because that level of introspection is missing. So we try to get people to, we, we try to make it snappy with three S's. The first one is self-awareness. So you need to find mechanisms for introspection. This could be anything. It could be journaling, could be talking to somebody, but something that actually gets you to the point where you give yourself permission to acknowledge that actually I'm struggling. The second thing is another S, which is sharing. Talk to people. One of the things we've seen is that entrepreneurs have this real gift to isolate themselves from everybody around them. When you talk to them, they talk about loneliness, but they are struggling to acknowledge that they actually contributed to that loneliness because the business comes first, friends come second, social contacts come second, family comes second. And at some point, even life partners do not want to listen to what happened at work today again because it becomes a bit repetitive. Um, the, the third thing that we like to leave people with is small steps. Because as entrepreneurs, it's usually the tendency to, to fix it quickly and to boil the ocean, just give me one thing. But it's literally, if you neglect your physical exercise, go for a walk. And maybe the next day you do a little bit more. But start small. Don't try everything at once. There are a multitude of things you can do to get better. Uh, and it really depends on where you are in your life, how comfortable you are. So um, it's difficult to give a blanket, simple answer. But it all starts with self-awareness. And, and I, I want to thank you, Nectaria, because the, this is an issue I'm hearing from advisors on, on boards, on big companies, that uh, essentially they're also entrepreneurs, um, the leaders of companies today, because of all the advanced technologies, because of the pressures of innovation, because of the uncertainties, and, and you know, at the macroeconomic level, at the geopolitical level, and so on. So there's a lot for them to learn, although we're talking about entrepreneurs, anybody in a leading position, I think, can uh, relate to what we are uh, talking to. And, and on that note, I want to say a couple of things about your journey uh, and, and give you that opportunity for our listeners that don't know you uh, very well. You are a fintech veteran, so most fintech people will know about you, you know, at least from 2014 with um, um, uh, the, as a co-founder and CEO of Startup Bootcamp and your podcast that you already mentioned, which I will share with our listeners, that's been running, I believe, for two or three years. You're an advisor to several uh, fintechs. I must also mention your recent recognition from Innovate Finance in their <laughs> inaugural Pride in Fintech uh, Power List. And last but not least, you are the co-founder of a fintech, Radish. So Tell us about that a bit and, and anything else you feel like mentioning uh, that I haven't mentioned from your journey. 
It's kind of funny, the older you get, the just longer the list gets because you've been around for longer. I find it always funny. Um, look, thank you for this. Um, I fell into all of this. I didn't choose to become an entrepreneur. And InnoTribe was the departure point with the startup competition. And then Startup Bootcamp was something that I had to do myself because nobody else would do it the way I wanted it. Um, I sort of retired at the end of 2019, 18. And um, I was curious about the space in the financial services spectrum where people have financial services needs, but the banks will never do something about it because it's just too much effort and too complicated and too expensive to, to serve niches. So um, Radish was born out of that idea. I was involved in something that ended up being the first LGBT bank in the world called Daylight. Um, and Radish is a take on how do you build financial services products for people who have big life needs, but the financial industry just doesn't see them and therefore will never create something that's targeted to their needs. So it could be a loan for a migrant who needs to re-accredit their qualifications so they can work on the job that they've learned rather than become an Amazon warehouse worker. Or it could be a financial services product for a woman escaping domestic and economic abuse or a loan for an elderly couple who needs to buy a stair lift. And although they have a house that they own, they don't have the liquidity and the bank looks at them and goes, you're old and no income, go away. Or uh, to link it to the pride bit and to the LGBT bank, a surrogacy loan for a gay couple who wants to start a family. So it's looking at a community and individuals within that who have a really important life need and try to finance that. But the bank usually will say, we don't understand you. And we don't want to invest in understanding and building something appropriate to your need. And Radish is a lending as a service platform that allows us to do that. And and so is it a B2B uh, offer? It's a, yeah, it's a B2B to C offering and it's UK focused. So our customers are the organizations where the individual, the borrower, finds out that they need to finance something and finds out that they can't afford it. And as a second step, find out that nobody will give them the money other than family or loan sharks or less appropriate organizations. So and that's where we come in. Great. Radish lending and I guess uh, embedded lending. Embedded lending, yeah. And and um, to close, I must say that your passion is really embedding um, mental health everywhere, right? No matter what you do. Well, you need to lead with vulnerability. You need to tell people yourself what your journey is so that allows them to open up. So I talk about my mental health journey wherever I can. I talk about my me being gay wherever I can just because I think that it is important to show visibility and to allow people to relate. And from that perspective, uh, life's too short to just mess around, I feel. I'm 56 now. We're not gonna we're not gonna joke around. Well, we're not going to joke around with serious things, but we do want yeah. to have fun and enjoy it. definitely life. will have fun. <laughs> Thank you for being with us, uh, Nectari. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 